It's so lovely to see everyone tonight, and uh, I really hope that you have been able to have a nice cup of tea and are feeling encouraged. We, we normally do our announcements and things, but we're going to do that at the end. Um, just feel there's something of God's presence so wonderfully here tonight, and it'd be wonderful just to go straight into our time of ministry. And um, uh, for those of you who have been coming regularly, you know that we are working through the book of Acts, and uh, we're currently in chapter 3, um, and we are moving through it so wonderfully. And uh, last week, Andrew, who played keyboards, preached so amazingly. I could give you another cheer, Andrew. Um, he spoke about the lame man at the beautiful gate uh, who was healed. And so some of my passage that I've been given is slightly overlaps with Andrew's, so it might be a bit like we're reading the same passage again. But I, I wonder if um, we, we're going to do the, instead of reading the whole chapter, we're going to work our way from, mainly from verse 11. Um, is, that, is that possible just to put that up, those verses? Thank you, Ken. So, basically, um, what has just happened is uh, Peter and John, I'm sure you know the Sunday school song, Peter and John went to pray. I always sing that and everyone looks blankly. They met a lame man on the way. He asked for alms. They held out their palms and said, this is what Peter did say. <laughs> Silver and gold have I none, said he, but such as I have give I unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And that's exactly what happened to the lame man. And so verse 11 carries on from that point. And it speaks about this lame man clinging on to Peter. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though through our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over um, and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this, this man the perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, 
whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So a really, really beautiful passage. And uh, I know it's, mine is the ESV. It was a slightly different one. Sorry, that's, I hope you could still follow. Um, so we have this amazing passage and story, and I, I'd love to really just unpack some things that I think could be really helpful for us. Um, so as I said last week, Andrew spoke so powerfully about how this lame man who had lain at Gate Beautiful, he was healed by Peter and John as they were going to the temple to, to pray. That was their custom, to go to the temple. And this obviously caused a great uproar, and news quickly spread. You can imagine for someone who'd been lying at that gate for years and years and years, and to see him walking, it must have caused a great stir. And people just crowded, the, Luke, the author says, they crowded into Solomon's portico or porch to see what had happened. And uh, it says the people were utterly astounded. Now, it's just a matter of interest. Solomon's porch or Solomon's portico ran along the eastern edge of the temple area overlooking the Kidron Valley and facing the Mount of Olives to the east. Now, very sadly, Ant and I were supposedly going to Israel in two weeks' time for half term, but uh, I think with all that's happening there, I don't think we're going to be going. We might have been able, well, Solomon's porch isn't there anymore, but we might have been able to see the Kidron Valley. But um, now you might be asking, why were they specifically gathered in that area? Um, it, one of the reasons was it was centrally located in the, in the temple, and it was one of the few public places in Jerusalem that was large enough to accommodate a large crowd. And uh, it was also the place where Jesus would go and frequent and teach uh, the disciples. It's where he shared and visited with people. And so his disciples continued in the same tradition as Jesus did. The, the place where he went, they were continuing to go and pray and to speak. And it was a, a place where people would go and give their sacrifices and their worship in the temple, and then they'd come out and have lots of debates and discussions around theological issues. So it was this gathering place, this melting pot for people that were going in and out of the temple. And um, so the disciples learned about this pattern that Jesus used. In fact, later on in the book of Acts, when we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira, remember they come 
and they pretend that they've given money that they haven't. That all happened in Solomon's porch. We, we kind of think where maybe they were in a tent somewhere or some home church, but that all happened in the temple grounds. And that's why they said there was a great fear that came on everybody in that area because of they didn't want to associate with them because of that um, thing that had happened. So it was a very public place that the, the disciples met together. And so when this healing happens, Peter is very astute and he takes the opportunity presented by a growing crowd who are really intrigued by this healing to tell them the good news of Jesus. And it says there, when Peter saw it, he addressed the people saying, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? You see, the healing of the lame man was indeed a miraculous event, but if it was just left there, it would be open to all kinds of speculation and of ideas of how it came about. And perhaps Peter was remembering back to Jesus' words when he sent out the 72 um, to heal the sick and cast out demons. And when they came back and they said, Lord, the, the demons came out in your name and we saw people healed. And Jesus says these very simple words to them. He says, rejoice not that the demons obeyed you, but rather that your names are written in the book of life. So in this moment, it seems that Peter understands that Jesus' heart is for salvation to come to these people, not just to see his power at work in signs and wonders, but those are more an invitation for them to meet the worker of those miracles for themselves, to meet Jesus. And uh, I think this is a really powerful lesson for us in our daily lives, isn't it? How, as we go about our business in our daily routines who does God perhaps want us to pray for? Um, who does he want us to minister to? And how can we use every opportunity that presents itself to us? How can we use it to proclaim Jesus to them as Peter did? Um, I'm so enjoying being able to study at the moment, so I can't resist bringing a little bit of it into the sermon. <laughs> but um, I just say uh, we're busy doing a, a section on hermeneutics at the moment and that's the study or different approaches or lenses to reading the the scriptures and one of the really interesting approaches is called a narrative approach and um, when we look at the book of acts through a narrative approach it's where you do a close reading of the of the book and as a literary work in its own right. And you sort of explore all the literary themes, all the, the devices that are used, like, um, I'm, I know I'm an English teacher by training, so maybe that's why it appeals to me. I know I don't want to get too technical, but it's just really exploring and unearthing all those wonderful richness of the literary devices that are used in, the, in those books. And most scholars would say that the books of Acts and Luke, the Gospel of Luke, are one unified piece of literature that was, both of them were addressed to an, someone called dear Theophilus. But it's really interesting, if you look at the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Act with this continuous narrative theme in them, you'll find that one of the things that Luke does in his Gospel is he's one of his main focuses is to show and tell that the person of Jesus 
was God's very own son who came to save the lost. That is a permeating theme throughout Luke's gospel. And so we see, even as he writes in the book of Acts, we see the same angle or lens that he brings in how he presents the story of what happens in the book of Acts. We read um, in Luke 4, verse 16 to 18, it says, um, speaking of Jesus, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And these beautiful words, which I'm sure you know, that Jesus read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Luke, as an author of this gospel, he really wants to demonstrate that Jesus himself used the Hebrew scriptures, which are our Old Testament scriptures, to show that they point to his true identity and purpose as the Son of God who came to save the lost. And so Luke, as author, emphasizes the same theme as Peter stands up to declare who Jesus is. And Peter begins to expound the Old Testament scriptures as Jesus had modeled to his disciples when he was with them. You see, Peter really understood this audience. They would have been temple goers. They would have been worshipers. And he calls them such. He calls them men of Israel. So they were devout Jewish men who understood the scriptures and uh, he was going to use these very scriptures to reveal Jesus to them, as Jesus did himself. Now, I suppose you all know the, one of the central tenets of belief that all Jewish people learned to proclaim from when they were very, very little, uh, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Everyone proclaims that. It is central to Jewish understanding of God that there is one true God. There's not many gods, but only one God. It's a monotheistic religion. And it was blasphemy to proclaim that God had a son. I think today, because we've got layers of history and our our Christian teaching, when we read these things, we think, well, that's obvious. But in that day, in that time, when Peter made these declarations to these people, he was standing in the temple courts committing blasphemy to say that Jesus was God's son. It was to deny that God was one, that God was alone, sovereign in himself, and there was only one God in their understanding. But you see, if we look back again to Luke, because if we read a continuation of Luke and Acts, we remember that Peter had a moment of revelation in Luke 9, verse 18 to 20. And uh, I'll read those verses. It says, Now it happened, when he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, that's Jesus, and he asked them, 
who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Peter had seen evidence that Jesus was the one anointed by God. When Jesus drove out demons, healed the sick, raised the dead, and calmed the storm. And as Peter said, the Christ of God, he acknowledged God's anointing on Jesus as the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, God's anointed one. And so now, in this situation, in the temple, Peter wants to show these same Hebrew people that had gathered in Solomon's portico that this healing of this lame man was a sign that God's Messiah had come and his name was Jesus. He was not just a prophet or a miracle worker, but God himself made man by sending his son, Jesus, who was of the same substance as God himself. Now it's really interesting when you look at this doctrine of the Trinity, of God being three in one, there are such beautiful traces of this all the way through the, the New Testament. And this passage is a wonderful one where it really explicitly suggests how, uh, well, not even suggests, says that Jesus is God himself. But later in AD 300, when they finally formulated the Nicene Creed, and they, they crystallized it after lots of centuries of debate of how, how do we kind of crystallize this, this doctrine and teaching of the Trinity. Remember those beautiful words of the Nicene Creed. He is true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, and through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and was made man. Just so beautifully encapsulates all that amazing teaching. So how does Peter go about this task? So let's just recap. We've got a man who was lame is healed. Peter is now thinking, I've got a huge crowd here. How am I going to convince them that the way they were healed has got nothing to do with us? It's got to do with Jesus. And he goes by, about doing this by modeling his preaching on Jesus' example. And he turns to the Hebrew Scriptures. So he starts off in Acts uh, 3.13, and I'm just going to look at three ways that he takes the Old Testament Scriptures to prove to these Hebrew people that Jesus is God. And the first thing he says is, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release them. Him. See, Peter identifies God in these passages with reference to his covenantal promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to the, the patriarchal fathers. He identifies God as the faithful God who keeps his promises to a thousand generations. And Peter introduces Jesus into this 
framework as God's, and the, the Greek word there is paida, which is, means servant, but some tr Greek translations use that verse to denote a son or child. See, Peter's audience, because they were learned Jewish um, worshippers, they would have understood that he was quoting from the prophet Isaiah, his powerful words foretelling the Messiah in Isaiah 52 verse 13, which says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So, in fact, what Peter is doing by quoting Isaiah, he says, the Jesus I'm talking to you about, you know very well. In fact, it was you who pushed for his crucifixion when Pilate was wanting to release him. You got it so wrong. This Jesus was the promised Messiah. This Jesus is God's own son, whom the fathers of the faith awaited to see and whom Isaiah foretold would come to be. So that's the first tack he takes. And then in verses 14 to 15, he goes even more directly. He's, he's not pulling back at all. He says, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, wow, whom God raised from the dead. And to this we are witnesses. Not only <clears throat> is Jesus God's servant Messiah, but he now uses the very names of God to refer to Jesus. You can be sure there were people going, blasphemy. How can you use the names of God and apply it to a man? Holy and righteous one. Once again, here we see him quoting Isaiah 24, verse 15 to 16. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise of the glory of the righteous one. He calls Jesus holy and righteous one, the only names that were used for God. And then he calls him the author of life. Here, Peter identifies Jesus with creator God. The man you killed was, in fact, the very God who brought all things into being. And the irony would not have been lost on them. Was it possible to kill the one who gave life to all things? And yet Peter says that is what has happened. <laughs> You're so thoughtful, Johnny. Thank you. <laughs> That's very helpful. Sorry. Thank you, Johnny. And <clears throat> it's so, don't you think this is quite staggering to say that a man was the one who created the world? Uh, he is challenging every paradigm, every possible conception of God and of Jesus, and of, but they couldn't deny that something powerful had happened. And I also think it's really important to note Peter's kind of style of rhetoric, how he talks, because Peter doesn't seem to be given to softening the blow or making niceties. <laughs> He's really quite going for the jugular and saying, you guys killed him. I don't think that's very winsome in winning over converts. <laughs> He's kind of making enemies of them. Uh, and 
it's really interesting, he's not really bothered about offending his audience on several levels. Um, he's accusing them, I don't know if I made up this word, maybe it is a real word, theocide, killing God, I don't know. Uh, he would have been a blasphemer uh, for calling Jesus God, but Peter's interested in proclaiming the truth more than finding affirmation and popularity. However, he does concede a little in verse 17 where he says, Now, brothers, I do know you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. So he's trying to calm them down. Maybe the blood was boiling a bit. And then we see this last reference to the Old Testament in Acts 3, 22 to 24. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. So here we see Peter quoting Moses in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 to 19. I also marvel at this because if you think what a great job Jesus did, I mean, these were illiterate, well, they probably weren't illiterate, but they were uneducated fishermen when he met them three years and a bit before. And here they knew the Hebrew scriptures so well, they were able just to quote it in their everyday language. Isn't that an inspiration to us to really imbibe the word of God so that it just comes out as our common speech? It was just so amazing that he knew and he understood all these things. So what Peter was saying here was, even the great prophet Moses, who wrote the Torah, the, the five, first five books of the Bible, even that great prophet spoke of Jesus, as did every other prophet after him, including Samuel. So he's saying, look, there's really no getting away from this. This is the one you've been waiting for. This is the one that has been proclaimed. His name is Jesus. And then we see um, this last bit where he speaks again about Abraham in verse 25, and he says, and what your, uh, God said to your fathers, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And we see that Luke, as the author, really begins to tie Peter's speech with the key themes from his gospel in, of Jesus as the one who fulfills the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. Jesus was the one through whom the promise to Abraham was fulfilled, that through the, the seed of Jesus, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Just look at all the wonderful nationalities represented just in this group. God, God has gone and blessed every nation through Jesus. He fulfilled the Mosaic uh, covenant where Jesus came and was the perfect one who fulfilled the law that Moses gave. He lived a perfect life. Jesus is the one who fulfilled the Davidic con covenant. He's the descendant of David's line who will be king forever. And then just to finish, what does Peter say their response should be to understanding this? He says in verse 19 to 20, repent therefore. 
turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus. So the first thing he says is repent and turn back. Now that you know the truth, change the direction of your lives. Change how you think about Jesus and start seeing him as he really is. And when you do this, you will know his life-giving power to cleanse your sins. And then he says that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And they had just experienced that powerful outpouring on Pentecost, on the Feast of Pentecost when they were in the upper room. And the Holy Spirit came in those tongues of fire and blew through their midst like a wind. They knew what it was to be refreshed by the Spirit. And they want, Peter wanted to say, when you accept Jesus who he is, not only will you see the world in a whole different way, but by accepting Jesus, you also receive the Holy Spirit and his power to refresh and to fill his people with power. So, so beautiful. And he ends off by saying, and or going back just in verse 16, and in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. And Jesus is saying, will you also have faith in Jesus and the power of his name and see the living almighty God of all transform not just this lame man, but everyone and anyone who puts their trust in him. So that's our hope and encouragement to us as we go out. Who is Jesus to you? And that we ask him to reveal himself to us. It does come by revelation, doesn't it? Even when we've known him for many years, he wants us to understand on a deeper level, even more fully, who he is and how magnificent he is. He is the author of life. Jesus is the very substance of God, made man, come to us and reveal to us God's heart by being amongst us. And so sometimes I just think the most appropriate thing is to worship. So I know you are tired. Andrew. I just, I just, um, just be, just, Andrew, can you just lead us with that song, um, The Name of Jesus, Beautiful Name of Jesus? And Catherine, if you want, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just, I'm putting a band together, it's just quick and easy. <laughs> Let, let's, let's stand and sing that together. Let's just sing that, those wonderful words, Jesus. Uh, it's such a beautiful name. <laughs> 